Since you were small, you probably read the book of Jonah as if it were a story about a man getting eaten by a fish. But we're here today to talk about how it's about something totally different. I'm Mark Holt. And I'm Bry Cox. And this is Gospel Doctrine. Well, once again, we welcome Bry Cox to our podcast. Uh, Bry Cox, award-winning photographer and Hebrew scholar, and he's here to talk to us about the book of Jonah. We are uh, extremely excited to be talking. We both prepared this lesson independently, so we're going to come together, compare our notes, and see if we have some common ground on a way to understand Jonah. So with that said, let's let's dive right in. Bry, go ahead and... Uh, Tell me, first of all, tell me what your impressions are overall, and then if you want to, you can give us the narrative version, like the top-level, maybe uh, children's bedtime story version of the book of Jonah. Sure. Um, I think one of the first things, uh, this is a book about a prophet, not necessarily a book of prophecy, but it's in the book of prophets. It's in the, uh, the 12, meaning the 12 lesser prophets, but it's in the section of prophets in the Old Testament. And the lesser prophets don't mean that they're actually less prophetic or lesser people. It just means that they're short books. And it's really kind of an abrupt story, right? It starts in the middle abruptly. All of a sudden, we're just thrust into the story, and then it just abruptly ends. And it's just this almost kind of like this quick legend, uh, most likely written by somebody much later. But it's just this quick story about Jonah. And so the, the, the bedtime child version is he gets called on a mission and doesn't want to go. So he turns his back on the Lord, runs away, tries to go as far away as possible, um, eventually gets thrown in the water and gets eaten by a fish, gets spit upon dry land. He then gets called on his mission again. And this time he goes, yeah, I think I should go this time. I sh- I sh- I sh- you can't run from the <laughs> Lord. He goes, uh, converts the city of Nineveh. And that's kind of the whole quick general overview. Yeah. So what do people normally take away from this story? Um, they usually... And it just happens, it's just kind of because this is how we think today and our culture is very literal. We say things very literal. We don't have a lot of symbolic ways of talking today. So when we read things in the scripture, particularly ancient Near East, where almost things are very figurative, they really focus in on the fish and a lot of times look for proof of people been eaten by a fish. Let's, you know, I, you know, I heard this legend of a sailor that fell overboard, you know, and then, you know, of course there's Goofy and Mickey Mouse that had their whole thing with the get eaten by the whale and yeah. fireworks inside. And I think there's so much focus on the fish itself. Yeah. And can you live in stomach acid for three days? Yeah. And when I was a kid, things like that, the vision I had of Jonah was similar to the cartoon version of Pinocchio, <laughs> which is where they're on a little <laughs> oh, raft. Pinocchio does it too. Huh? Yeah. They're on a little raft goofy. inside this whale and there's, they have a candle. So there's plenty of light. Yep. And it's not like they're pressed on all sides by stomach tissue. They're, they're in this cavern. And right. they happen to just be floating and waiting for the whale to spit them up. And so And there's other things in the in the yeah, in the they, water of the stomach. And, there's other flotsam there. <laughs> yeah. And maybe even a fish that they can catch and eat. So, yep. so it's not a place of death. It's a place of waiting. Right. And so once you once you grow up and you realize, oh, that's not what the that's not what a fish's stomach is like at all. 
you think, oh, well, now I don't believe the book of Jonah, and therefore I don't believe the Bible at all. Right. People do this a lot with things in the Old Testament, because Old Testament is just a whole different world than the New Testament. New Testament's Hellenistic. Uh, a lot of the Old Testament is ancient Near East, and everything's so figurative, and so people get really hung up on, like we talked about when we had the uh, the creation story or Noah, right? Like, the literal things. Was the earth literally created in seven or six 24-hour periods with a day of rest? And the... the Seems unlikely. Yeah, and when the earth, you know, was flooded, you know, and it says all the earth, uh, in Hebrew, does that mean all of the earth or does that mean what I can see, right? And they get really hung up on the literal details. And it's the same thing with Jonah. And it's not uncommon, I think, to be in a Sunday school class and have the teacher talk a lot about... Yeah, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Yeah. An example of what I um, have learned recently that, that pertains to our lesson today, which is something that I just learned about the book of Genesis. So you're, you're talking about the creation and God separates the firmament that is above the waters from the firmament or the, the waters that are below the firmament from right. the waters that are above the firmament. And I've always wondered what that meant. Does it, is the sky a kind of sea or what are, what are the waters above the firmament even mean? And once you understand what their cosmology was, how they understood the universe, they see the world as three levels of water. There's the level of water that is any standing water, the, the ocean or a lake, that's why they called the Sea of Galilee a sea. It's another, they, they didn't understand it's 400 feet below sea level. They just, they just think it's part of the same body of water that's mixed and all land floats on this water. And so you have the, you have the level of water that is at, at ground level, but then if you were to dig anywhere and you, and you go deep enough, the belief was, oh, you'll, you'll hit water eventually and Sure enough, when you when you find a well, what have you done? You've tapped into this water that's below the earth. And when it rains, there are literal floodgates in the sky that God can physically open up to drip down rain. And so there's this reservoir of water above the earth. There's a reservoir of water at the level of the earth. And what we'll talk about today, there is a reservoir of water below the earth, something that uh, is, and the earth is held up, you'll you'll find reference in the Old Testament to something called the pillars of the earth. And these are what hold up the weight of the earth on top of this water and hold up the water above the earth. And it's a, obviously it's not a, an understanding of the universe based on physics. It's an understanding of the universe based on lore. Okay. So as a, as a child, we all heard this children's bedtime story of Jonah getting swallowed by a whale, quote unquote. And by the way, there is no whale in the book of Jonah. It's a fish. Right. Hebrew is dog gadal, which is fish great or great the great fish. Yeah. But in, in New Testament, um, it gets translated as whale. Yeah. So that's where people call it a whale. Yeah, but Jonah is also called Jonas. So we know that's not true <laughs> in the New Testament. So we can't pay attention to that. You have to make, you don't, you don't necessarily have to make a decision, but there's a decision to consider, which is, am I going to take this book as a historical account of a prophet named Jonah? And there are certainly wise people and spiritual people who do just that. And there are also wise people, very under, people of great understanding who take this book as a parable. And we're going to talk about it. I think you and I um, both see the prophet in discussing the book of Jonah as a parable. And the same lessons can be learned from it if it's a historical book, but it's written in such a in a fashion to make it such a great parable that would almost be a waste to treat it as anything else. So even if it is a historical work, we're going to treat it as a parable for our purposes. And you're free to believe that it's literally true. And I'm not saying that I don't believe that, 
but sometimes people get so caught up on the fish and how could you survive in the belly of a fish? Right. And that becomes the whole lesson of Sunday school. And the problem with that is if you look for the miracle in the wrong place, then you miss the actual miracle. I like that. And if you build up the wrong thing, because we just live in a different culture and we just don't see it and we start building up this whole building based on the fish in a sense, we start building, you know, like walls and just, you know, to be symbolic. Then they end up missing, missing the whole lesson of the real story, which is, I don't know, a whole bunch, yeah, <laughs> which right. is we there can get to in a lessons. minute. Yeah. I've got a whole list that I've made here of different ways I could use this in a lesson and just themes, great themes. I could say, here's a theme yeah. and then use Jonah and here's a theme and we use Jonah. And there's, I think a good I've way for us to, 15. because there are two of us, why yeah. don't we take this chapter by chapter and, um, as themes come out, you can you can say, all right, this this touches on one of my themes that I've got, or um, and and I'll do the I same. I like that. So yep. yeah, we'll talk about the we events start, of I each chapter. One Go quick, ahead. While I'm making that point, I think it's stronger to see the fish as figurative, and Shaul the hell as literal. So a lot of people see it the opposite. They say, well, you know, he's eaten by a fish, and that which means symbolically he was in hell. But I think it's closer to say. And I think if you have that in mind, then I think a lot of this makes more sense. He literally was, you know, in a literal sense at the gates of hell. And, and he was symbolic. Symbolically, and then that's portrayed by being in the belly of a whale. I see. Okay, I like that. All right, well, I'll start with uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. And first of all, we have to, um, we're going we're gonna to make reference to a couple of Hebrew words as we go. First of all, we're going to learn the meaning of Jonah's name. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai. And this is, this is Dove, son of faithfulness. And this is, if you were, if you were a Hebrew, you would laugh at this point because Jonah, you would, you would probably be familiar with the story of Jonah and you would know that if there's any prophet in all the works of the prophets who is not faithful, it's Jonah. In fact, he's a terrible person. Jonah doesn't want to do any of the things that the Lord wants him to do. Uh, this this book reminds me a lot of the story of Balaam in um, the book of, gosh, I forget whether it's the book of Numbers, I think it is, where uh, where Balaam is asked to come prophesy, but and he's going to prophesy for money, uh, evil things against the children of Israel, but his donkey keeps stopping and, and eventually speaks to him when he's beating it, and then an angel, and then, and then his eyes are open and he sees an angel along the way. And the kind of prophet that Balaam was is very similar to what Jonah is. He's he's called, so the word of the Lord comes to Dove, the son of faithfulness, arise and go to Nineveh. Um, now this brings up, uh, before we go any further, you'll remember a few lessons ago we talked about Nineveh. And we're going back in time a little bit because Jonah is a historical figure. He actually appears in the book of Kings and it's somewhat before the time even of uh, Elijah and or a contemporary of Elijah. So he's he's known in the northern kingdom of Israel to be an actual prophet. And a lot of people believe that, that what, what happened here was that they took a real prophet and they placed him into a parable. Yeah. So for people who really want to know what's literal and what's not, um, yes, I, I absolutely believe Jonah was a real man and he was a real prophet. And I absolutely believe in terms of literal things, you know, he was saved by the Lord and then 
from there, then we get a lot of figurative symbolism. Yeah, and he may which, have even gone when, on a mission. He may have gone on a sea yep. voyage. And we don't when know. we get to heaven and see the big vision of life and get to be able to look back, and it may actually be... Eaten by a fish. Literal too, yeah. yep. But I think it's less important to focus on that as it is to study the actual symbols. So he's he's called to go to Nineveh, this terrible, this place, and we talked about how the the Assyrians were even worse than Hitler. They tortured their enemies. They flayed them alive, which is to take their skin off of them alive. They they burned them alive. They would pull their hearts out. They would dismember them. And things that I don't even want to say on the podcast, just awful, terrible things. They were inhumane in the extreme. They were the the most evil empire probably that has ever been. So uh, he's, he's called to the most evil place in the whole world. Yeah. So this is um, another way of saying it, Babylon, right? And it's founded by Nimrod. So when we did the lesson on Noah, we talked about the difference between, you know, Zion and Babylon, where Zion is the temple, the top of the mountain. That's what Zion means, is the dry place above the flood, compared to Babylon, which tried to make its fake mountain, the Tower yeah, of Babel. Yeah. So this is, just, again, showing those two things here. Here we got the super wicked city. I like it. Okay. And he is in... Israel, we can presume he was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel, so we can presume he's somewhere in the nation of Israel when he receives this revelation. In other words, he's he's sort of in a mountainous area, and before the days of the temple, uh, he that's what the temple was, were the tops of the mountains. And how does he react to this to this call? He goes, he he gets on a ship for Tarshish, and Tarshish or Tarshish is the Old Testament name for what we would call Spain, the southern coast of Spain. And so the the Mediterranean Sea was the ocean as far as they knew it. And that was as far away as someone could get from Nineveh. Nineveh's to the east of Israel and Tarshish is as far west as you can go. So he gets on a ship and he basically says, God, if you want me to go this way, I'm going that way. Yeah. So he's, and I think the big symbol here is he's turning his back on the Lord. Um, in... Midrash, one of the big accolades that Abraham gets, because Abraham was considered one of the greatest prophets, is that when the Lord says, Lech Lecha, go, go, he doesn't wait. He doesn't say, okay, good idea. I'm going to pack my bags and I'll head out in the next week or two. Abraham goes and the Lord says, go here, go there, go there. When the Lord says, go, Abraham goes. And to contrast that, when the Lord says to Jonah, go. <laughs> not only does he not go. He doesn't go. He just runs away. Yeah, he goes in the opposite direction as fast as he can. Yep. I like that. And uh, you were mentioning something about the the mountain versus the depth. What were you saying there? Um, so we have a constant theme here. And anytime you see house of, right, you can usually read that as temple. There really isn't a word for temple. It's, um, you know, palace, if you want to say it. But like when you hear like Bethel, it's house of the Lord, which is temple. So anytime you see house of or even like house of Baal, that's temple of Baal. Okay. Um, and similarly with, so you can just read, anytime you read House of, it's almost always just temple. And same with a mountain. And we talked about this with, um, I believe in the creation, we talked about a lot of the Midrash stuff with creation, particularly with Noah. But the temple is the high place, the highest place you can get. Because when you you mentioned, right, the firmament and the waters above and the, and the waters below. And the big symbolism of the firmament is it's the veil, it separates heaven from earth. There's the heaven above and there's uh, heaven be- you know, and then earth below. And what separates it is the horizon. And what separates the horizon, you know, the, you, see, you see like the sky above and the waters below, and it's almost kind of 
hard to distinguish the difference some days, but other days it's, but how do you get above that? How do you get closer to God? You, you climb a mountain. And so the temple is always the mountain, you know, altars are always built on a mountain, um, unhewn stones, right? Symbolize Christ, a lot of these things. And so there's a lot of temple imagery in Jonah. Okay. And as, in contrast to that, he goes, instead of going anywhere where there is a possibility of being mountains. Instead, he goes down. Yeah. And he goes down towards the sea. And there's kind of some interesting ways of reading this here. Uh, he he found a ship better to say it was coming from Tarshish, even though the, the Bible says coming or going to. Uh-huh. So in other words, just basically the first ship coming to dock and he just kind of runs and hops on it. And then he pays its fare, meaning he just says, I'll pay all of you, sailors, everybody, to turn this boat around and head to Tarshish. Kind of like he bought out the ship. He just bought it out. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'll spare no expense. I'm doing everything I can to go that way, not this way. And once he's on the ship, he goes down further, right? And the opposite of the brother Jared, we talked about that, uh, where the brother Jared goes up and up and up the temple, the mountain, as he gets his glowing stones, um, Jonah goes down. He goes down into the ship as low as he can get. Yeah. And then he goes asleep, symbolizing that he's trying to live a, ni- a life of numbness. He's trying to be numb to what the Lord's trying to tell him. Yeah, because he's already received revelation from God. So if he were to go back to God and say, God, now what should I do? God's going to say, well, obey the revelation I've already given you. He knows that any revelation he gets is going to point him back in the other direction from the direction he's heading. And he already knows he doesn't want to hear that. So his only alternative is to go to sleep, is to completely shut out that voice. And there's a lot of things I think we do in life, right, to numb ourselves. It's one of the really interesting things when you look around the world and the things that people do. It's like they're trying to numb themselves from experiencing life or from listening to the Lord. And I think that's a good example right here is Jonah, in a sense, is us here. Yeah. And he's, uh, and just like that, if we, if we were to, if somebody were to come to you and say, okay, what would God tell you when we're in those moments? What would God tell you if he could tell you anything? Well, we already know what the answer would be. He would point us to our biggest sin and say, repent of that thing. Yeah. And we, we don't want to hear that. Instead, we'd rather go down in the bottom of the ship and go to sleep because we've already gotten on this ship for the whole purpose of getting away from that thing he was telling us. Yeah. And there's a big theme that kind of overlays, I think that points out right here, which is. The scriptures always say, do your duty, but the world says, follow your heart, right? And the two things are contradictory. And so here he's going, I don't want to do that. You know, I do what I want. I'm, I'm going to go that way. That's, that sounds like a better way to live is to do whatever I want. As opposed to when you say, I have to do my duty, then that requires me to say, well, what is my duty? And I have to make moral decisions about myself and my path and how do I figure out what I need to be doing yeah, in fact, I wanted to mention this um, in connection with our last lesson of Job, but I think it's appropriate to mention here. Because I think that Jonah, the common wisdom or the common understanding is to put the three wisdom books, the the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job as the three books of wisdom in the Old Testament. But I actually would, would classify Jonah the same way as I would the rest of them, which is it has this... Uh, Wisdom, as it was understood by the the ancient Israelites, the ancient Hebrews, was knowledge coupled with the the additionally the knowledge of how to apply that knowledge. So you have knowledge together with morality, 
and that the two of those together equal wisdom. Because you do have words for knowledge and wisdom separately in the Old Testament. And the wisdom literature is teaching you, okay, once you, they, they assume you have knowledge. You come to the scriptures already with knowledge. That's sort of the entry coin for getting in to be able to read the scriptures. You have knowledge there. And the wisdom literature is teaching you the moral compass that you need. In this case, almost a literal compass. He's heading west. He should be heading east. Yeah, and east in the ancient Near East is like saying north. That's the direction of wisdom. That's, yes. That's the direction of the, the Lord. Where the sun comes up. Right. And the, uh, so the, the wisdom literature was to teach wisdom when you already had knowledge. And I think Jonah continues this same tradition, even though it's found much later. Uh, I, I think it's very fitting that in our curriculum, it comes right after the book of Job, because to me, it's another of the wisdom books. Yeah, and it doesn't fit any of the other uh, books of the prophets. All the other books of prophets, there's a whole series of prophetic narrative, and this doesn't fit any of that. Yeah, this they're is, all writings of the prophets. Yeah, and this is just kind of this little excerpt, almost like a legend of this prophet. Yeah. Uh, great. So let's go on a little further. So there's a storm. As soon as he gets out onto the sea, there's a big storm. And the these sailors are they're fascinating characters. They're almost stereotypically cut out of this cloth. So first of all, they they're all pagans. They believe in all different gods. And when the storm happens, they all say to everyone, call upon your gods. This this storm is so bad, we're probably going to sink. We all might die right now. And so they all start calling on their gods, but that doesn't work. And so they go get Jonah. Now, to me, this is evocative of Christ, uh, or I should say it's, it's a good contrast with Christ sleeping in the ship when there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And his, uh, in this case, the captain comes to the the to Jonah and says, what are you doing here? Sleeper, arise, call upon thy God. Well, to Jesus, they come and say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And so it's similar. Jesus gets up and calms the storm. And what Jonah does is he gets up and says, I'm the cause of the storm. So once it, Jonah, first of all, they cast lots. And lots was a, a almost a symbolic way in ancient Israel of saying, what is God's will? And yeah, the lot, divination. Yeah, the lot falls on Jonah. This is your fault. You're the problem. And so Jonah says, it is, it is my fault. And I, when he says, I fear the Lord, what he's saying is, I fear Yahweh. And they all, they've all heard of Yahweh. They know Yahweh by name. And so they say, oh, well, is Yahweh a powerful God or is he not? Obviously, the lot fell on you. We're all willing to believe by that mere fact. We're willing to believe in your God, that he has power here and that he is the one that we should obey at this moment. And so immediately Jonah is put into contrast with every sailor on the ship, which is they're all instantly believers in Yahweh. And they're not the problem. Whereas Jonah the prophet, he is turning his back on Yahweh and he is the problem. It's very fascinating how right away this main character of the story, a prophet of God, a prophet of Yahweh, is put among a bunch of unbelievers and right away they're more righteous than he is. There's a lot of examples um of the idea of stumbling blocks. And it's one of my, I have a long list of notes on lots of things. And one of them is stumbling blocks, right? Where if you're heading the wrong direction, the Lord tries to, in a sense, stop you <laughs> and say, no, 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 don't go that way. Go, go back this other way. The Lord's really good at always saying no to us and saying, nope, that was the wrong way. And here's a good example. He's, he's literally heading in the wrong direction. And the Lord's trying to stop him. And there's also good examples of the Lord saying throughout scripture, Awake and arise. Oh, it's always awake. Like, come out of your numbness and get off your butt and let's get to things. Yeah. 
You and mentioned so, there was something about the three days and the three nights. Oh, yeah. So that would be coming up here with uh, probably that next part where he gets uh, thrown over. Okay. So let's talk about that. So then the sailors, they're, they don't want to murder him. That's really the, the next result, right? Like they, they give away all of their possessions. They throw everything overboard. The storm still doesn't stop. And so now they're left with Jonah. And Jonah's like, yeah, it's me. By the way, I'm a Hebrew. It's kind of a way of saying like church member. It's not really the... The official way of saying it back then, but it's just basically saying to non-Israelites, I believe in Jehovah and this is my problem. This this all has to do with me. And so they're like, oh, I don't know what to do. And so there's an old Midrash. It's not from Midrash Rabbah, but uh, Midrash Tanhuma, which says that the Lord basically says to the sailors, no, you're not going to murder him when you throw him overboard, which really what would happen if you fall off a ship, even today, like you and I have been on cruises together and you kind of stand on the dock and you, or the the edge of the shipping cruises look off. together with other people it wasn't just you and me. I think <laughs> yeah, with a whole bunch that, of friends. I think we should make that clear. <laughs> Thank you. So we look off the the bow, and you just go, "Man, if I fell off, you're dead." Yeah, I'm dead, and that's what the sailors are basically saying. Like, if we throw him off, he's dead, and that makes us murderers. And the Lord says, "No, you're not murderers. He's in my hands." So they go, "Okay." So they throw him off, and the interesting thing is, they're the non-Israelites, and they quickly repent, and then they show gratitude to the Lord by the sea calming and they offer sacrifice and by some yeah and by some accounts not in the not in the scriptural account they go back to shore and become lifelong converts of of yahweh lifelong believers and so it's it's fascinating that jonah that we have a little bit of foreshadowing here that jonah even when he's not trying to be a missionary uh he's he's leaving this this path of or the this uh bunch of converts in his wake yeah, and the, all the non-Israelites um, obey God in the story. Yes, and the one Israelite, everyone is more righteous than Jonah. Doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So then, so he's, then he's in the water. He gets thrown into the water, and now we enter the prose part or the uh, or the poetry part. Right. We go from narrative to poetry, and and now he gives this lengthy prayer, which is a a, a medley in a sense, like a a chopped together section of Psalms. And it's basically him praying to the Lord. And and this is where the fish comes in. And so this is another good reason why you could kind of say, well, because this is all, this is that section, which is really figurative. Mm -hmm. Then it makes more sense too, that the fish is figurative. But here's some really interesting stuff about ancient Near East. So during this time, if you were to live in that time, you would definitely know about the ancient god of uh, Enki, Sumerian god, uh, called uh, Ea in Akkadian. Okay. And he's the god of wisdom and the god of the uh, underworld. And he lives in the, the what's called the Opsul, or the, the the water underneath. And so in the creation story, we so talked about... So kind of this about, deeper level of water we were talking about earlier. Right, yeah. In the creation story, we talk about how God organized the water and how that goes right along with you know, the story of the primeval opsul. So it's the same word here. It's the underwater world. And if you imagine hell, particularly in a symbolic sense, right? Heaven is the top of the mountain. That's the closest you can get. So if you want to go to hell, it's not just the base of the mountain, but even lower than the base of the mountain is the bottom of the sea. Mm -hmm. And under there, there's sea creatures and it's scary and it's dark. Yeah, and if you've ever been on a ship, you look down there, it's cold and it's black Yep. And it's desolate and it means death. Yep. And so it's, it's just it's what everyone believes is the under is the life after death. Yeah, and so there's some really interesting things about Enki 
like if people wanted to give a sacrifice to him, they sacrifice fish because fish is the messenger to Enki. And I so see. if you want to get a message to him, you either sacrifice a fish. There's even a story of a king who puts an oath into a carp and then sends the carp into the water. And that's supposed to then deliver this, this message to Enki that lives in the underworld. And there's even the story of Anana and her descent where she wants to, you know, go to hell and back, go down to the underworld and back. And the specific length of her travel is three days, three nights. And so if you're talking about Shaul, which is hell, and Shaul is the Hebrew word for hell, if you're talking about in the desert, you can have different um, symbols. Imagery, yeah. And imagery. But if you're talking about visiting Shaul via water, the only thing that makes sense is to travel by fish at a distance of three days, three nights. And that's... That's fascinating. That's, yeah. And we have a lot of things like that in our day. And if you and I were to tell a story and we would write the story down and then that gets read a thousand, two thousand, two thousand years later, people will take a lot of those things literally, even though you and I are talking back and forth from figurative to literal, back and forth so fast yeah. that you and I get or it. Or cultural references that people are, wouldn't get. Yeah. Like if I said, if you said, oh, I went to Cafe Rio on my way over here and I said, lucky, then <laughs> everyone listening would know, oh, I've just done a quote from Napoleon Dynamite. And I don't really mean that you're lucky that you went there. I was making a joke and trying to bring up this the ideas, the feelings, the emotions from a previous story. Yeah. But somebody a thousand years from now might read that and say, I wonder why Brian was lucky to go to Cafe Rio. Did he have to win some sort of lottery to go there? People who go to Cafe Rio are always lucky. And they might make all these assumptions about what that means. When in our day, it's just assumed. Everyone who hears it knows what we're talking about. Yeah. If I said, man, I went to two days ago, I went to a game, a football game. And man, my team's number one. Right, So I use two numbers there. I'd say, well, two days ago, which is literal, my team's number one, which is figurative. But in the future, maybe some might go, I don't know, man, he really liked this team that had one player and they were like, it was yeah. like David and Goliath. This one guy could come. Or they were everybody. the oldest team. They were the first one formed. <laughs> yeah. And then they start building, in a sense, like a literal or symbolic building around that and then focusing on that building that they've built as opposed to what I was trying to say, which is I had an awesome team. It's my favorite team. Yeah. So I think this is one of those really good examples. And so it's talking about Job, like you said earlier, Job figuratively being swallowed by a fish so that he can literally experience hell. Right. And so he's in, and if you imagine you get thrown off a boat and maybe he grabs one of the crates and they're the provisions they threw off the boat, or maybe he's holding onto a plank or who knows what, whatever it is, he's sitting out there in the depths of the sea for who knows how long. And the time isn't, doesn't matter literally, but what matters is that symbolically you say in those days, three days, three nights, because that's how long it takes to go to hell and yeah. back. And in fact, Jesus used, uh, when asked for a sign that he was the Messiah from those who didn't believe, yeah. he said, no sign will be given to this generation, save the sign of the prophet Jonah. Right. And what he meant was he, Jonah was swallowed up for three days and three nights, and then he came back to life. But Jesus was in the tomb. For less than three days and three nights, he was in there for parts of three different days. And so we often say Jesus was three days in the tomb, when really it was a little over a day and a half. Yeah, now, so there's a little so interesting the, thing which we could get into. Well, we'll, we'll do that when we later. do the New Testament. Yeah. But actually you can show that it probably really is three days, three nights in a literal sense with Christ. But even then, even if you don't believe that, you still say, well, figuratively, it was three days, three nights. Why? Because Christ went to hell and back to unlock the gates of hell. Right. And that's right. the distance. The distance is 
three days, three nights. That's how long it takes to go to hell and back, which is what he did. He went to the spirit world and unlocked the gates. Okay, so Jonah, um, he's in the belly of the fish, and then that's when we get this. It's almost a psalm. Uh, yeah. Where he's he's praying, and if you can imagine what the belly of a fish is like, then they're trying. the The reason they're I think all Israelites have, have cut open a fish at some point, and so they can imagine what the inside of a fish would be like to be in there. It'd be really close, no air. Uh, you'd be dige- being digested by the fish. You'd be being crushed. You'd be being drowned. You'd be suffocating. And so you would you would be suffering in the extreme. And after three days of this, Jonah is ready to, he's, it, it, to put it in the terms of an addict, he's hit rock bottom. He can't right. go any lower. He, the, and perhaps even the fish has swum to the depths of the, the bottom of the ocean. And so he can't go any lower. He has nothing more to lose. And he finally decides, I'm willing now to stop running from God's will. Yeah. So then he gives this, um, it's, a, it's like a, a medley of all of these Psalms stitched together. And even though it's in the, old, in the Old Testament in past tense, it's probably more accurate to read it in the present tense. Okay. Because it's happening to him. And I imagine it of him almost like a thought or a prayer as he's sinking in the water. Like maybe he's done treading water, whatever. And now he's sinking because as you read it, you're, it's like this sounds like he's being engulfed by water and the vines at the bottom of the water. And he's now hit the bottom of the, you know, of the, of the sea. And then he's miraculously brought up to the shore. So it starts off, In my trouble, I call to the Lord, and he answers me. From the belly of Shaul, I cry out, and you hear my voice. You cast me into the depths, into the heart of the sea, and the floods engulf me. All your breakers and billows sweep over me. See, it sounds like he's just in the sea. He's about. He's running out of energy. He's tired. Yeah. Maybe he's even sinking. I thought I was driven away out of your sight. Would I ever gaze again upon your holy temple? So he's wishing... Is it possible for me to still live and go back to the temple? The waters close in over me. The deep engulfs me. What weed twine around my head. I sink to the base of the mountains. Symbolically meaning like I've as far away from the temple as now possible. I'm now like at the bottom of the sea. The bars of the earth close upon me forever. In other words, I'm in the gates of hell. Does it, so literally as he died, he's not actually dead, right? But he's saying in a figurative sense, I am, I am at the point now where I can see hell I can see into the next world. This is where I'm at. I'm right there at the edge. Yet you brought me, I brought my life up from the pit. Oh my God, or oh Lord, my God. When I, my life was ebbing away, I call the Lord to mind. And my prayer comes before you into your holy temple. They who cling to empty folly, which is another way of saying those who cling to, uh, to worship idols, forsake their own welfare, meaning they forsake their true loyalty or their, or their, their real reward. But I, with loud thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will perform deliverance of the Lord's. So he finally comes around. He's like, and in fact, whatever your will, Lord. Yeah, and in fact, this reminds me a lot of uh, Alma chapter 36, which is where um, Alma is describing to his son the, the, the suffering he had in the place of darkness when he's unconscious. And in the middle of it, he thinks about Christ, and then he his suffering transforms into joy. Um to me, and, and similarly to that, I look at this and I read the temple at the first part of the chapter. I read the temple, so in verse 4, and then I read the temple again right. in verse 7, and I think, oh, something's repeated here. It's a temple imagery. Can I look in the middle and maybe find an inflection point? Is this possible that this is a chiasmus, and we've just read two of the... Basically, the story is now going to change. Yeah, and the whole, the whole 
to give the ending away without giving it away, the whole book of Jonah is a chiasmus. And, but while we're talking on that symbolism of the temple, right, the opposite of going to the temple is always love of self or idolatry. As Abraham says, like in a lot of Midrash stories, like, why do you worship this thing that you made with your own hands that has eyes but does not see and has ears that don't hear? Because and why? Because if I worship that, then it won't tell me no. I can do whatever I want. And it's not going to tell me no. So I get to worship me in a sense. I got to do whatever I want. And so we get that that imagery again, the follow your heart. While you're, while you're talking about that, um, while you're talking about idols, so there are some well-known prophetic images that would have been available to Jonah. One of these is written early on. Jeremiah, one of these comes from Jeremiah, which is, is later, but one is from Hosea, which is an early prophet, and one is from Psalms, which is likely the time before Jonah was written. And and we don't know when Jonah was written, but uh, the the historical figure of Jonah is at one time period. The book of Jonah being written is perhaps later. So perhaps all of these were available. In any case, the, yeah. first, the first scripture I want to read is in Hosea chapter 8. Um, and I won't read all the verses, but we're talking about verses 1 through 10. And it goes over, again, we see this image in the Old Testament a few times, which is how, uh, like you said, an idol is something that we create with our hands. And um, in verse 6, from Israel was it also the workman made it, talking about an image. It is not of God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. They have sh- sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stock, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. So when Israel goes after idols, this is what happens to them. And this is this is the start of this imagery of being swallowed up when you follow idols. And uh, we continue that imagery in, in Jeremiah chapter 51, and we'll look in verse 34. Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Bab- Babylon, hath devoured me. He hath crushed me. He hath made me an empty vessel. He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. And dragon is another um, reference to this Leviathan creature from the book of Job that we talked about last time, which is the, a, a sea monster. So it's very similar to the fish that swallowed up Jonah. He, he hath swallowed me up like a dragon. He hath filled his belly with my delicates. He hath cast me out. So the idea is that uh, if we if we put ourselves at the mercy of Satan, and, and every prophet prophesied that this Babylon would sweep in and destroy Israel if they didn't pay attention to the prophets and the word of the Lord. And so much like Jonah was swallowed up by a whale, much like Israel is swallowed up by Babylon, as, a, as if a sea monster had swallowed them up. This is also a spiritual image, and we're, we're going to talk about the levels at which we can understand Jonah, but the one of the levels is we liken Jonah to the nation of Israel. And the, other, and the deepest right. level is we liken both of them to our own spiritual journey throughout life, which is when I don't pay attention to the Lord, when I turn my back on the temple, then I am swallowed up by sin as, it, as if it were um, carried into the depths of the sea. The final scripture I want to read is in Psalm 124. And this this actually is almost so close to what happens to Jonah that it's unmistakable. So we we can we can see that this the ancient writers of Jonah were taking this well-known uh imagery of being swallowed up and putting it into a parable. Um 
It had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us. Then they had swallowed us up quick when their wrath was kindled against us. This is Psalm 124. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. And so Jonah, after three days, this prayer that you just read, he's spit out upon dry land, much as Israel is freed after being engulfed by Babylon for generations, then they're allowed to return to Israel and refound their nation. And after we are swallowed by sin and we repent, then we are spit out on dry land by the mercy of God. Yeah, Jonah, yeah, exactly. Jonah is a symbol of Israel. It's a symbol of us. Um, Jonah knows that the city of Nineveh are idol worshipers, right? But in the end, the, the kind of the trick question or the turnaround is that Jonah is worshiping an idol by running away from the Lord. He's, he's trusting in his own heart. Um, one, of, one of my favorite stories of Abraham from Midrash is like he's having these debates with Nimrod because uh, Nimrod's, one of his high priests was Abraham's dad, Tarak. So he has these various debates about what an idol is with uh, Nimrod, and he, Nimrod keeps trying to kill him. And then his dad, Tarak, says, well, go sell these idols for me that I've made today. And Abraham keeps you know, destroying them and burning them and chopping them up and you know, talking people out of buying them. And, and, and eventually what he does is he chops all of them up or burns them, depending on the story, and he puts the axe or the uh, torch in one idol's hand that he leaves. And his dad comes home and he's like, Abraham, what the, why did you destroy all my idols? He's like, why'd you think I did it? He's the one holding the ax, right? And so, <laughs> and it's the point I was like, you literally made this thing out of wood and yet, and you worship it. And yet I'm pointing out the fact of the folly. Yeah. You're, you're not likely to, to believe me when I say that it chopped everything up. Yeah. And so then in his prayer right here, Jonah says, they who cling or worship idols forsake their true loyalty. And he's kind of starting to get it that, yeah, I've, I've been following my own heart. I've been yeah. trusting in myself as opposed to trusting in the Lord. Well, let's let's go into chapter three. So yeah, right. he's 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 given up the idea of in some to some extent of following his own heart. The word came chapter three verse one. The word came word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. So he's called again, and this time Jonah arises and goes to Nineveh. And in verse four. Jonah, so the city is represented as being this huge city. In fact, he goes he goes a day's journey into town, which is bigger. It's actually bigger than any city would have been at that time. You know, in, in a day, you can travel 20 miles or more. And the circumference of uh, Nineveh would have been much smaller than that. So Right. So it sounds like it's a three days walk around yes, or a three days walk every, across. Everything is exaggerated in this story. That's yeah. another way we know that it's, they're using, much like in the story of Job where they're saying Job is the most righteous man, but his suffering was the greatest on earth. And he was, and it was all of it undeserved. Um, th- that kind of superlative tells us that we're in the middle of a parable because yep. when we. Because I mean, we, even Salt Lake's pretty big and I can run around it in under yes. a day. And, and 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 only sit still in absolutes, as we know from Star Wars. That was a nerdy joke. I'll probably cut it out later. Uh, anyway, so he's yet forty days. So he this and this uh, sermon is only five words long in Hebrew. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Um, do you want to talk about that word overthrown, or do you want me to? Or yeah. So one of the interesting things it's the same verbiage used as uh, when God talks to so- Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so. He's excited. This is like, for a lot of people who don't know the Old Testament, but maybe who know the Book of Mormon, it's like saying a Nephite prophet 
who maybe really despises the Lamanites because he knows in the end the Lamanites are going to wipe yeah. him and all of his relatives and all of his future generations are going to wipe him out. So he's like, oh yeah, now I get to go prophesy destruction to the Lamanites. And so he goes and he says, in 40 days, you know, you're going to be overturned. And one of the things a prophet's supposed to do is, and what makes you a prophet, is to not just go and have a whole bunch of story and things like that. You basically just do exactly what the Lord says. Ko Amar Adonai is the Hebrew. Basically, I'm just the messenger and here's the message. Thus saith the Lord, Ko Amar Adonai, blah, 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 blah. And that's his message. He repeats it. 40 days more and Nineveh will be overturned. Yeah. And, and then there's a twist. Well, go ahead. Yeah. And uh, I, I think I wanted to mention, uh, it brought to my mind the beginning of the book of Job. I always have these things come into my head after I do one of these podcasts. So it's kind of fun for me to be able to go back and mention something I, f- I thought of after I was done. Right. <laughs> but um, so at the beginning of the book of Job, the first couple of chapters, normally what you would expect from the scriptures would be follow the commandments and you'll be blessed. But, right. what, but what Satan or Satan is saying to God in this in this chapter is Job is is doing good because he has been blessed. And so therefore, let's do bad to him because he's done good. And the whole and therefore the whole book is turned on its head. Job is not blessed because of his righteousness, he's cursed because of it. And it's or, just Or yeah, maybe and I might phrase it slightly differently, but I get what you're saying. Go ahead. Um because in, in scripture, it's all wisdom, and wisdom is a generality. And the general wisdom is do good, get good, to, to quote my Hebrew teacher, who is an LDS, by the way. He's just, he just trains pastors, and he's awesome. But his, the way he phrases it is do good, get good. That's the formula. If I do good, then I will get good. And if you remove the reward, will he continue to do good? Yeah. And so, and that's the big question. And then and it even becomes almost uses a retribution where people start coming to him and use do good, get good as a backwards formula. And they say, well, you're getting bad, therefore you've sinned. And, and the whole point is, no, he hasn't sinned. And, and in the same sense, when we try to show compassion to people, it shouldn't be, well, obviously, you, you know, all this bad stuff has happened in your life. You know, you, yeah. you have these health problems or whatever it is because you've sinned. Yeah. And my point is, the, it, Jonah is prophesying you're going to be overturned much the way that Job was overturned. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. The, bu- the, the, book the of, switch has been flipped. Yeah. The and book the universe of Job, is now upside down. There you go. The book of Job was backwards. He should have got, done good, got good. And instead it was backwards. He did good, but continued to still get bad. And, and so this word has been used in the way that Jonah was expecting, which is what you said, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're destroyed. Rain, fire rains from heaven. The Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt. And so he's thinking, great. And he's thinking, yeah, it's it's the whole city is going to like physically almost flip upside down and there's going to be nothing but dirt there. Yeah. It's just going to be fire and brimstone. And then in the end, nothing. But right. But in, but in Hebrew, much like in English, we can say that's going to be overturned. Um, you know, we have a lot of fi- figurative meanings for overturned, just like, uh, or they have a lot of figurative meanings for overturned, just like we do. And so... What ends up what ends up happening, here we are in, in chapter 3, verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He laid his robe from him and covered him with sack, sackcloth and sat in ashes. And uh, anyway, we read through the rest of the we read the rest of the chapter, and they all repent and they all cover themselves in sackcloth, even the animals. Yeah, and so then we have that there's a double meaning in the large city. It can mean a large city, but it also means uh, a large city that belongs to God. Say more about that. 
And it's a big lesson that the Lord is saying, I don't just care about my nation of Israel. I care about everybody. And I want you to go proclaim my gospel and, in a sense, teach repentance to these people. And Jonah does it, but he's sad that they repent. And the whole idea of sackcloth and ashes and fasting, it's all showing that they repent. When it says down to the least of them, it's showing that they're truly repentant. Like even kids repent, animals, which don't need repentance. That's the whole point is they really take the message. Yeah. And the kings, the elite, it specifically mentions all these things. It's like Job uh, sacrificing for his children in case they sinned without knowing it. It's like taking it one step beyond righteousness. They have they have repented and then some. Right. And it's to show the point that even a terrible prophet, I hate to call him a terrible prophet, but even... He's a terrible human being. Jonah, there's no question in the story that that's the way the story is told. Jonah's meant to be despised. Right, in that sense. Um, but in a sense, we're Jonah. And so it's hard to say, you know, like, it's easy. As well, that's, it, that's uh, spilling the beans a little bit. But go ahead. But it's like uh, how Hugh Nibley says, like, it's it's easy to condemn a past generation for not listening to a prophet, but at the same time, not listen to the current yeah, modern prophet. Yeah. And so in the same sense, it's like it's easy to throw stones and go, oh, my heck, that guy's a moron. Yeah. But that is the point, because then we're supposed to then go, oh, yeah, maybe I'm doing some of these yeah. things. Maybe I'm judging those people I don't like. Maybe I'm wishing judgment on them yeah. when the Lord wants mercy for them. So the last verse in chapter 3 is, God saw that they'd repented, and he repented of the evil he'd said he'd do unto them. But the but the fact remains that God fulfilled his word. He told Jonah he would overturn the city of Nineveh. And what has happened? In the forty in in just the few days since Jonah spoke, the entire city has been turned o- upside down. It turns over, meaning they repent. From wickedness to righteousness. And forty means great change. Four means uh like of this earth. F- forty years in the world. And wilderness. when you talk about forty, you're talking about great change on the earth. Yeah. Like the flood was 40, 40 days, 40 nights, even though it was actually a year. But you say 40 days, 40 nights because it's talking about great change. Jesus fasted for 40 days. So you'll see this this yeah. 40 symbolism consistently. And in Hellenistic, I mean, because in that, in that era, there is a lot of literal. Everything's far more literal. He may well have fasted yeah, for 40 days. Exactly. So I don't want to, just because we say something in the Old Testament doesn't mean it holds true in the New Testament. Interesting. So... Here we are in chapter four, and I, I just want to say right now at the outset of chapter four, this is where most of the retellings of Jonah stop. Jonah, True, yeah. Jonah left the service of God, swallowed. He went on this. He went on this boat. He fell asleep, figuratively and literally. I mean, they might even get that right. And then he's swallowed by a fish. He comes back. He preaches, and they all repent. And if you've ever seen the Veggie Tales, there's a there's a cartoon of Jonah, and they all go yay, and they're all nice to each other. And I can't remember the the mean thing they were doing, like bopping each other on the head or something, <laughs> and they stopped doing it. And that's the end of the story. But if you stop here, you miss the entire point. Chapter four is really the whole point of Jonah, and it's what makes this book so utterly amazing. Um, and if even in our manual, if you read the manual, it says, the one of the first questions is, why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? And then it the cross-reference is a scripture in Nahum where it talks about how violent and how scary and how evil the Assyrians were. And so the implication is that he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid for his life. But now we learn the real reason. Jonah, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jonah, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, um, 
I pray, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repentest thee of evil. And this is uh, one of the, in fact, this is one of the attributes of God from the Torah. And it's, it's the whole reason that Israel exists. When Moses was showing God to the Israelites, he's, he's describing God in, in much these same terms. He's saying, God is merciful. He's slow to anger. When you repent, then he will, then he will repent himself of the evil that he has promised unto you. So Jonah is a prophet of Israel precisely because God is this way. And here's Jonah throwing a tantrum saying, I knew it. Yeah. I knew if you sent me here, you were going to forgive them. I don't I want them to have mercy. Yeah, I, I want them to have justice. I can't believe it. Yeah, say more about that. And he gets his he gets a seat ready, right? He, I kind of imagine him because it describes all this stuff. I, he gets a spot. He finds a nice, comfortable place. I kind of imagine him kind of wiggling his butt in the dirt and getting all comfortable. <laughs> and he pops watching, his popcorn. Watching for the destruction. And he's getting there and he's just waiting. And then waiting. And yeah, then here waiting. he goes in verse five. He goes out of the city, sat, he sat on the east side of the city, made him a booth and yes. sat under it. He gets all comfortable. Till he might see what would become of the city. Go ahead. And he waits and he waits and then nothing happens. And then the sun eventually is no longer comfortable and the sun comes out. So the Lord, he protects him and he sends him a vine, right? And the literal translation is gourd, but the whole idea is that it's just this plant. That a just, with a big leaf that's shady. It just immediately, miraculously shades him. Overnight grows up. Overnight. And Jonah... The opposite of gratitude is entitlement. And he doesn't go, hi, thanks, Lord. That was Instead, he just deserves it. He just feels like he just deserves it. And he's just waiting for the destruction. And so the Lord sends a worm to come and eat the plant. Right? And it's all more figurative stuff. And then the plant dies. And then Jonah weeps for the death of the plant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, and God asks this question twice. First, in verse 3, Jonah says, it's better for me to live than to die. He's so angry that they've been forgiven that he'd rather be dead. Now, you would think a prophet would rejoice. But when you were a missionary, I mean, what would you have thought if a whole city was converted on your teaching? You yeah, would wouldn't that be amazing? You would have rejoiced. And he should re be rejoicing. But instead, he wants to die because he wanted, just like you said with the Nephites and the Lamanites, he knows the prophecies. The Assyrians are eventually going to destroy Israel. And, and, and there's no reason to think they will do it in any less brutal a fashion than they've done everything else. And so he hates the, the, the Assyrians are very much his enemy. And so he wants to die. Jonah wants to be killed. And verse four is a very powerful question. Doest thou well to be angry? And then he does everything you're saying. There's this plant that grows up, a worm eats the plant. And, and then God asks the question again, uh, God, because God couldn't get through to Jonah. Jonah gives no response in verse four. When the question is asked, Jonah gives no response. He leaves. And so God creates this plant. A lot of people read this and they're like, what is this plant doing? What is the worm? What's going on? Right. But it's the same thing with the fish, right? It's all yeah, figurative language. Yeah. And so here he is with this plant. And then God asked the question again. So go ahead. Let's start in verse nine. All right. So I'm, I'm using the Tanakh. So I have to look here a little care more carefully at the you, numbers. You have the, real, you have the legit scriptures. <laughs> but uh, All right. Nine. Then God said to Jonah, are you so deeply grieved about the plant? Yes, he replied, so deeply that I want to die. Yeah, so he's he asked the question again, doest thou well to be angry in my in the King James Version? And Jonah says, again, repeats, I do well to be angry, and even unto death. And this is a kickback to Elijah, because what there's a Jonah is usually referred in terms of the winds, 
One uh, breaks a mountain for Elijah and one tips over Jonah's boat. So there's, there's these wins and one of them is the Jonah wins and it's to tie him with Elijah. And the other thing Elijah does is when Elijah feels like he fails, he prays to God to die. Yeah, when he's in the in, when he's in the wilderness and nobody in Israel has converted, but that's the opposite. That's a contrast, right? So between Jonah Elijah and is, Jonah. But those those things are to show that Jonah and Elijah are connected, but that Jonah is the anti-Elijah. Interesting. Because Jonah wants to die because the people didn't get burned up. He cares more about this plant than all these children and thousands of people. He he reaps over this plant, but not of the. And that's the whole point to show that he's the anti-Elijah. Oh, I like that. I never thought of that. Um, He's, yeah, so the, so God gives him this plant to teach him a lesson. He brings the plant up in one day, destroys it the next day. And God says, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he's, ex- and Jonah, I think, expects God to, to want the answer to be no. But Jonah says, yeah, yeah, I am, I am <laughs> yeah. angry about the gourd. Yeah. And then God says, okay, good. Thou hast pity on the gourd. In other words, you, you loved this thing that was around for one day. And so Jonah, I'm going, I'm going to meet you this far. I'm going to, I'm going to grant you that you have a right to be angry for this gourd. And, you know, you're throwing a tantrum right now, but I'm going to, let's say for the sake of argument that you have every right to be angry about the gourd, even unto death. You can be so angry about this gourd that you can want to die. Shouldn't I care a little bit about an entire city full of people that are the work of my hands. Don't wouldn't you give me the right to care about something? You care about this plant that you had no part in creating. It was not here one day, it was here the next. That's what the meaning of the plant is. And this is the whole reason that this chapter is the most important chapter is Jonah wants to like you said, he wants justice for his enemies and mercy for himself. And he's angry at God for being a merciful God. So here's here's the point is we want, we want to understand, first of all, we can understand Jonah in a number of different ways. We can understand it as a book about missionary work. The second level is we can understand it as a story about a prophet who didn't listen and then listened and was swallowed by a fish and went and preached and they, and they were converted. The third level is we can understand it as, uh, this is talking about the nation of Israel. Jo- Jonah has been, um, the nation of Israel is going to be swallowed by a foreign king and taken away. And then it's going to be, once once it realizes the depth of its sin, it's going to be spit up onto dry ground and have access to, to return to the temple again. And then it must, you know, worship worship Yahweh forever. And finally, this this is bringing home to us that what do we do when God loves our enemy? And how do we, how do we recognize that we are Jonah? Well, one of the big cruxes, I think, of the story, which is the Lord is saying, if you want repentance, then you have to forgive, right? You're, and that's the whole point, we're Jonah. And we say, yeah, but I want that guy to get justice, but I want me to have mercy. And it's like, in the end, what we really need to say is like, eternal justice and mercy, that's in the Lord's hand. I'm not going to worry about that, right? I can make daily judgments on how to live my life. It's a whole nother thing. But in the end, it's not for me to wish justice on anybody that's for the lord and i'll just leave it to the lord and or, or in other words we get to decide we get one decision as to the kind of god we want to worship either he's the kind of god who has justice and mercy or he isn't but we don't get a different god for other people true and one for ourselves so we get to wish once it's it's almost like the monkey's paw kind of wish if you wish for justice then 
oh boy, you're going to get it. Yeah, and there's a, one of my favorite quotes um, from Hugh Nibley, and I, I guess I've quoted Hugh Nibley a few times. But That's I, okay. Because I'm always rereading a couple of his books at a time at any point, it feels like. But one of my favorite things, as he says, is the purpose of life is to forgive and repent. And so I have a list of all the various... And I think you can. You can reduce it down that yeah, far. And of various people, what's the purpose of life, right? And I like Hugh Nibley's the best because that is the whole point. The whole purpose of life is to forgive and repent. And that's what the angels... Yeah, if you just did those two things, I think uh, Envious be four, because we have that ability. And that is Jonah's position. And the Lord's saying, in the end, that's the last question we left hanging with is, should I not save Nineveh? And if he says, <laughs> no, destroy Nineveh, what he's basically saying is, all right, then you don't get forgiveness yourself. But he was like, yes, give because them mercy. Were, yeah, then, Jonah is more, then more guilty get, than all the people of Nineveh of disobeying the Lord's voice. Right. And, and, it, and it's all brought home to him. It's very similar to the story you, taught, you just told about Abraham, where his father comes home and says, did, why did you chop all these up? And the axe is in the hand of the, the last remaining idol. And it's all brought home to him in that moment that... Everything he wanted to believe, he he has to now put his money where his mouth is. Yep. Whatever he answers is his answer. Yeah. And it's left hanging as a parable, right? And you don't get the answer. Right. The question, the final verse, should I not, should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? So the animals are mentioned here because that's one step beyond repentance. Yeah. And you might have a different take on what the animals mean. No, that's the whole point is that not only people repent, but they really repented. It's a way of saying it's bigger than repentance. Yeah. So God is saying, what kind of God do you want? And that's the point of the book of Jonah is to say, um, do you want a God that is, you know, do you want, do you want to complain like Jonah did at the beginning of chapter four, I knew you were going to be like this because you've always said that you're a merciful God, slow to anger, quick to mercy, quick to forget. You're always willing to turn back your wrath when people repent. And I was just hoping you would be different in this one instance. Are we going to throw that kind of tantrum or are we going to be grateful that God is a God of forgiveness and be willing to find that forgiveness within ourselves? Yeah, and so this, that's why this the whole story is a chiasmus because in the middle of the whole story, Jonah repents, goes on his mission. Nineveh repents. And then we get back to the same things. Now they're having a discussion again with the Lord. And now we're talking about all these things again. And so in the middle of that is Nineveh repents and and Jonah repents. And so if Nineveh doesn't get repentance or doesn't get forgiveness, then Jonah doesn't get repentance. Wow. And then I do have one quote from uh, Midrash Jonah. Let's give our final thoughts. And this is... An actual answer, right? Even though the scripture leaves with a question, uh, it says, At that moment, Jonah fell upon his face and said, Guide your world by the attribute of mercy as it is written, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. So Midrashanah says that uh, Jonah does come to the right understanding. It says, Yes, Lord, I want mercy, and I want mercy for them. Gosh, when we read the script, some scriptures are uh, di- more difficult than others to, to put ourselves into. But once you, and, and the, Jonah is another book that I would recommend reading in a different translation if, you, if you're if you having a tough time penetrating the language. Because once you understand what's going on here, it's so easy to put yourself in the position of Jonah and say, yeah, he has every reason. There is no more wicked enemy that you could possibly have than the Assyrians. And so the average everyday Israelite can think, oh, that guy down the street who has more cattle than me 
he's my enemy. Or uh, today, you know, the, the person who never forgave you or spread a rumor about you or who, who knows the, the kind of things we do to each other and can't forgive. The, that person, are they deserving of forgiveness? Can you let it go? And can you recognize that letting it go and not only letting it go, but desiring their good as, as fervently as you desire your own is a precondition of your own mercy. That's the lesson of, of Jonah. It's a powerful, it is the most powerful lesson. It's surprisingly foreshadowing of Christ and of Christ's message. Yes. I feel like you miss so much if you focus on the fish part, right? There's so all the, there's so many deep lessons in this that you could spend the entire Sunday school on. Yeah. And I want to, oh, Brian, I think it would be I think appropriate. the Jesus part is a really interesting, to tie that in at the end, but go yeah. ahead. I, I want to mention some of my resources. Um, again, I always, I always talk about Tim Mackey and the Bible Project, but uh, I, I listened to Tim Mackey's podcast on this, and he has five, five hours worth of just, just Jonah material. And that's not to mention the other material that exists with the, with the church that he was at, the Door of Hope. Um, so do you have any, any resources that you used in preparing that you want to talk about? Um, not probably easily accessible to people. For well, me, it's a bunch us, of... Yeah, tell us what you so, learned. Uh, so the way I study, I typically is, I keep notes by subject. And so when I run across something, when I'm studying, say, like Midrash, or, or I'm reading about Jewish legends or something like that, and I see some little thing, and I go, hey, that seems to tie, and I, and I go back and I write it down. And then eventually when I like... So if I want to pull this up for today and talk about today. I've got all of my notes typed up and it's really a matter of kind of rereading them. And you mentioned your, yeah, you mentioned number one, your Tanakh and number yeah. two, your Hebrew this is a, teacher. Yeah. And so a lot of that is just in my notes, but that's not easily accessible to people. I just feel like, so one of the easiest things, I think the best things is I really like Hugh Nibley for the fact that there's a lot of people, if you know something about something and you look online and you you realize a lot of videos and a lot of information is wrong, right? They're written by people that maybe don't know as much, but know a little bit enough that they want to make a video or something. Uh But what I like about Hugh Nibley is that he knows and gets all that so much. And so if you really want, I mean, I feel like his like Old Testament studies is great, you know, uh, Temple and Cosmos, those kind of things really dig into a lot of this old world stuff. And then you know that the perspective is also correct. Yeah, and you can you can uh, you can understand where it's being figurative and where it's being literal, and right? Because what he, the figurative language means. Yeah, so that's one of my favorite resources. Is a lot of times I'll pull up some of those, and then I also have some various Jewish books. Where I'll just go back and look, and it's like, doesn't he? Doesn't so and so mention this here and there, and try to find that again? Well, we'd like to thank Bry Cox from brycox.com if you want to check out his website uh, for being with us. Thanks, Bry. You bet. Let me add one quick thing about Jesus. Please. Because the whole point of Jonah is then brought back around in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, then Jesus refers to Jonah uh, given almost two big parables. The first parable is saying to the people, look, Nineveh repented and listened to the prophet. Are you going to be... And a much greater prophet than Jonah is here. Is here, right. Are you going to listen to me? Or are you going to be overturned? Worse than Nineveh, yeah. Are you going to be overturned in a different way? Right. And then the second lesson is... Just as Jonah was in the in Shaul for three days and three nights, I too will go to hell and back, and it'll take three days and three nights. I was and then I was watching um, a a documentary on some archaeologists in Israel. They found another candidate for the tomb of Jesus, and 
as part of this documentary, they're talking about how they find the oldest, once, once Christianity became widely acceptable, they would find these well-known Greek symbols on the, on the tombs. But before that time, the oldest imagery to be on a tomb was the imagery of a man being eaten by a fish. And this was the earliest Christian imagery. This is how you knew somebody was a Christian is they had a, a depiction of Jonah on their tomb. So, okay. So it was even older than the cross is the idea of, of this fish eating a person. Oh, that's interesting. And a lot of people, right, they get hung up on the point of, was Christ actually in the tomb for three days and three nights? Right? Because now this is now Hellenistic. It's more literal. And they say, well, you know, a lot of times we will say it's two nights and one day and a part of a night of one day and a part of a day of the, you know, the morning. So it's really maybe, in a sense, three days, but not necessarily three nights. Um. But in uh, John 19.31, it mentions that it was a high day. So it's actually, there's an actual extra Sabbath in there. And so there actually is an extra day and a night. So it actually ends up being, for those people who are really particular, a full three days and a full three nights. Oh, I'll have to, well, thank you for that. So one little tidbit for people. And I consider myself a New Testament scholar at times, obviously not that much of one, or I would have known the high day. But, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> but so, even today, there's Jewish high days. So Christ considered himself a modern day, in his day, a modern day Jonah. And the the message of Jonah is surprisingly Christian in its, in its final understanding, which is we owe forgiveness to everyone else for the same reason we owe it to ourselves, which is that we either believe in a God who forgives or we believe in a God who doesn't. And let's choose a God that forgives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.